right, so tonight we're going to be looking at another easy passage of Scripture. I say that sarcastically. Um, Daniel chapter 9. So if you'll turn there to Daniel chapter 9, and we'll get started tonight. We had a break of a few weeks, so let me just take a minute and just kind of um, kind of review and get our bearings as to where we know we're going to go. So I put together this little chart. Hey, there we go. So you could see what we've talked about so far. And sometimes charts can be, it can hurt your brain, you know, make you think differently. And sometimes they're really helpful. So I, I hope that um, this one's helpful. Uh, we've been talking about you know, the four kingdoms that you find all throughout the book of Daniel. It's kind of the foundation to understanding the prophecy. And so those three kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece here, and in chapter 2, you know, Babylon's picture is the head of gold. In chapter 7, she's the winged lion. You can see how that works. Hopefully that'll help give you a little bit of clarity there um, as far as making the comparison. Because remember, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are saying the same thing, uh, they're just um, describing it differently. One is the, uh, the, I call them the metal soldier, the, the statue, and the other one is the beast. So that gives you a, a little comparison there. And then as we went a step further, the fourth kingdom, okay, and again, it doesn't have a name, it just says it's the fourth kingdom. Uh, I'm just following what the scriptures say. Um, and of course, the next major world power after Greece was Rome, but yet there are some, also some aspects of the fourth kingdom that are still yet future, and those would be the ones after the church age, I'll just put it there so you can kind of see it, uh, the Antichrist with ten kings reigning together, and then the Antichrist says, I don't want to rule with you guys anymore, I want to um, have my own ball on my bat, and it's my own game, and so I want to rule by myself. And so, again, chapter 2 and chapter 7 give you a comparison of those things and what is happening. And then, of course, the fifth kingdom, which is my favorite kingdom, and it should be yours as well, is the kingdom of God. And uh, Pastor mentioned this this morning, not the rule of God necessarily, but it's the future reign, that kingdom aspect that he talked about in his sermon. Um, and so, chapter 2 and chapter 7 the millennial kingdom, that stone becomes a great mountain, fills the earth. Christ, the Son of Man, is given that kingdom um, as part of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, like we talked about last time. And then eternity with Christ in chapter 7 tells us it's an everlasting kingdom. So tonight, um, we're going to talk or work our way through Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel chapter 9 is... And this is just a simple outline so you can see it. I'm going to leave it up there as, as I work through it. So chapter 9 of Daniel records a third vision uh, that he received. But that third vision only occupies a small part of the text. The prophecy of the 77s down there at the bottom, verses 24 to 27. But the verses that precede it um, are crucial to understanding it. And a lot of times people just skip that part. Um, and I think uh, they do it not understanding the importance of it. I mean, this is a prayer that Daniel offers. 
And they say, oh, well, let's just skip the prayer and, and get to the prophecy part because that's really what we want to do. And, and by saying that, you know, they're, they're, I, you, just, you just can hear it in their voice. They're, they're concerned about the prophecy of the 77s, and Daniel was. Because chapter 9 is all about what's going to happen, Daniel says, to my people and to the city of Jerusalem. What's going to happen? I want to know what's going to happen. Is God still going to be faithful? Is he still going to uh, fulfill his promises? Is he going to leave us in the dark? And that's kind of the context as you open up this chapter in chapter 9. Now, I skipped chapter 8 on purpose. Um, chapter 8, you can go back and read that um, at your own time. But chapter 8 really deals with the second and third kingdoms, the Medo-Persian and Greece. And if we had time and we're talking about those kingdoms, we would go there. Uh, so, But we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to go right to chapter 9. Um, because this is a big deal, and this really connects into some things towards the end in the book of Revelation. So I want you to look with you in your, um, chapter 9 in your text there, and we'll read the first couple of verses here to get started. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Ashuharis, of the line of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, another way of saying Babylon, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in, de in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So as, as chapter 9 opens, Daniel understands that uh, Jeremiah had prophesied and he gets a hold of, of Jeremiah's book. Again, Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries as well as Ezekiel. Um, I like to say it this way. Your friend Jed goes with you into the exile. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. That's the way you remember it. So don't ever forget Jed. But um, Daniel here, he wants to know what's going to happen. He wants to know what's the future for the nation of Israel. What's the future for the temple? What's the future for the city? And so he undertakes a Bible study, like we're doing, of, of Jeremiah's prophecy. And he knows that the 70 years are kind of getting ready to be finished. It's about 68, 69 years when he's reading this text. So he knows that in Jeremiah's prophecy, it said that there were 70 years left. So what's going to happen after the 70 years? In Daniel's mind, he's thinking, well, God's going to restore us back to our land, and he does, and and, and there are lots of things that Daniel says, I want to see happen. I want all these things to happen. So he's curious as to what exactly is going to happen. What um, is God going to do? And by the way, uh, just a few, uh, I want to say, uh, the last chapter that really ties into chapter 9 is chapter 5 of, of Daniel, which is the handwriting on the wall, which is Belshazzar. Um, when Belshazzar fell, um, she fell literally, she fell physically. Uh, by the way, that also means that other kingdoms will fall literally and will fall physically. And when we have this setting here in, in chapter 9 of Daniel, we're thinking about what and how did he get a copy of Jeremiah's prophecy. So if you want, I'm going to read the verse from Jeremiah, but if you want to hold your place there, you can turn over to it in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verses 11, 10 and 11. Because... Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, is probably one of the most, um, one, of the, one of the verses that is most taken out of context. You've probably heard Jeremiah 29, 11. 
um, many times. I heard it this morning. Um, and again, it's a good verse. I'm not um, treating the verse harshly. But um, look at verse 10 of Jeremiah chapter 29. So somehow Daniel gets a copy and he understands. Look what it says. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek, my, seek me and find me, and when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found um, by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. And I will gather all, from you all the nations and from all the places to where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place which I caused you to be, to be carried away captive. So after Daniel looks at this prophecy, he knows that Jeremiah has said, after 70 years, we're going to be brought back to the land. And God says, I haven't forgotten you, Israel. I have a plan for you. Even today, I haven't forgotten you, Israel. I have a plan for you. And, and he wants to know, this is what Daniel wants to know. He wants to know, well, what does that mean? What's going to happen? I, I, I really want some of the details. And so what Daniel does is he undertakes the study of Scripture. What he really does is he gets down on his hands and knees before God and he prays and says, Lord, help me to understand. Do I need to do something? Is there something that I need to fix in my life? Is there some sin that I need to confess? Do I need to confess the sins of my people? What do I need to do to help give me understanding? And so he does what we all do when we get into a situation where there's just no way that we can get the answer in our own strength. We know God's got to work through us. We know that we've got to get down on our hands and knees before God in prayer and even in fasting and seek for an answer. And that's what he does in this text specifically. Look at what it says in verse 4. Let me read you the length of this prayer. And we're not going to talk about the whole prayer in detail. I'm going to point out a few things. But look at this prayer because this is Daniel's prayer of confession and restoration. Just listen closely to some of the things he says. Verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers and all the people of the Lamb. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, those near and those far off and all those countries to which you have driven them, because you, or excuse me, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by, once again, his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law. And has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse 
And the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Verse 13. As is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. You made yourself a name as it is this day. We have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your transgressions, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, that is a powerful prayer. That is a prayer that's worth taking the time to go through line by line. Now, we don't have the time to do that tonight, but this is Daniel's prayer of confession. He knows that his people aren't really ready to go back yet. It's almost as if Daniel's saying, 70 years hasn't really been enough, Lord. We really need to stay here longer for us to really get the message. I mean, he says in there in the text, we haven't even prayed. We haven't even sought your face. We haven't even done these things. The general theme of the prayer is that God is faithful to his people, but his people have been so unfaithful to him. That's your general theme. And Daniel identified with the Jewish people, even though he himself, from the text of Daniel, we know that he remained faithful. But yet he still identified with all those that didn't. And because he was an Israelite, he took part in the blessings as well as the cursings, you know, for her disobedience and for her uh, failure to obey. And the ultimate curse was being expelled from the land, which is exactly what has happened. But let me just point out just a few little things in this prayer um, I want you to note. Look at verse 4. It says there's two important terms here in verse 4. Uh, covenant and love. Look at what it says. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Um, covenant and love are what we call definite singular nouns. They mean there is a certain kind of covenant here and a certain kind of love that's in view here. And in light of what Daniel was praying for, the return for the Jews to their homeland, the continued existence of the nation of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant 
It's something that Daniel's really talking about. God promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 to bless all the nations of the world through him, through the Jewish nation. This is the love that, or excuse me, this is the covenant that Daniel is referencing here. It's the promise that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. Then the love here is expressed in this verse. It's the loyal love of God. God always keeps his promises. He will always, always, always be faithful, no matter how unfaithful we are. And especially to the nation of Israel, God says, I am committed to you. I have made a covenant with you. And then you can't help but note, secondly, as, you, as you have, we read through this prayer, Daniel uses a total of about five different terms or synonyms for sin. He says, and I wrote them down, sinned, committed iniquity, done wickedly, rebelled, departed. It seems like he wants to confess all the nation's sins of every kind to their fullest extent. I mean, there's no... Uh, you know, beating around the bush here. There's no going in circles. I mean, he goes right for the center target and says whether it's iniquity, whether it's rebellion, whether it's we've departed, whether we've sinned, whether it's idolatry, whatever it is, we're going to confess all of those. And then a third thing just to note, and he says it a couple times, Daniel says that Israel had not listened to the prophets. You heard that many times as you read through it, that that. The prophets told this. The prophets said this was going to happen. But you did not listen to them. And, of course, Jesus would say the very same thing. As he came into Jerusalem on Passion Week, he would say the very same thing. And Daniel says God's justice has to be rendered because the people have sinned and they have broken his law. But even in all of that, Daniel says, please, Lord, be merciful to us. Please don't make it any worse than what it has to be. And how many times have we probably prayed the same thing? Lord, getting through this sin for the 15th bajillionth time, seem like I'm going through the same cycle all over and over again. Lord, be merciful to me this time, even more than the last. You know, Daniel also refers a little bit to the exodus from Egypt, a former demonstration of how God's power. Um, and you know, interestingly, the deliverance of people of Israel uh, from Egypt is in many respects the kind of the Old Testament standard illustration for God's power and his ability. Just like in the New Testament, um, the resurrection is God's standard of power. But the crux of, of Daniel's prayer here in verses 16 and 17 is the righteousness of God. And the point is that justice had to be served and Israel had to be punished for their sins. It would be right, it would be just for God to do that. In the book of Revelation... As you get to chapters 4 and 5, and, and um, Christ has been given the authority to judge the world, to judge. It's as if God, his time for grace and mercy, eventually it reaches a point as which there has to be judgment. There has to be judgment rendered. And that's why we often call it the tribulation, because... <laughs> It's not a nice time. It's, it's not a, a fun experience. But it would be right for God to restore the nation. Daniel says, Lord, it would be merciful. It would be right for us to restore you. But we still want to follow your plan. And so he makes a passionate plea for the Lord to listen, to forgive, to hear, to act. Lord, please don't make it worse than what it needs to be. And I know we've all prayed that prayer one time or another. 
We've made a mess of things. We've prayed and confessed it, but there are still consequences to it. And we say, Lord, just please extend to us mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Now, verse 20, God's response. And I love this too. It says, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and presenting, or presenting my supplication before the Lord um, uh, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused swiftly or to fly swiftly, reached me about the time, the evening offering, so 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. And at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So immediately, before Daniel ever utters the prayer, God's already dispatched an angel here. Uh, to a supernatural being here to give Daniel the answer to that prayer, to help him better understand. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that Gabriel is used here, Gabriel's given. It says, it's almost as if Gabriel and Daniel are buddies, they, like they know each other by name. Um, you know, Gabriel reaches Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice, was the same angel who appeared earlier to him. We didn't get a chance to get into chapter 8, but chapter 8 is where you get introduced to Gabriel. He's the angel, same one that appears later on. This also means maybe that some angels have a distinct look to them. Uh, you know, how else would Daniel would have known, oh, that's Gabriel, if they all look the same um, or some fashion. Um, remember, this is also the same Gabriel, likely, that appeared to Zechariah and Luke 119 and to Mary. Same guy. So he's really, really old. <laughs> I guess we could say that. So um, Gabriel informs Daniel that he's been dispatched. And he, he says, therefore, that last phrase of that verse, verse 20, therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Okay? So he informs Daniel he's been dispatched to understand what's going on. And, of course, we have a similar helper. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he can give us insight into a passage better than any man, any sermon can. And all of Daniel's other revelations were given to him. But here, Daniel's prayer actually initiates the revelation from God. That's a powerful prayer. Because by his prayer, God says, okay, I'm going to give you special understanding and insight. And he's going to write it down for the benefit of us all. But I'm going to give you this because you get it. It's almost like you get a special privilege. And of course, next week when we talk about chapter 10, that's a whole different special privilege where God kind of peels back the spiritual realm and Daniel gets to see what's actually going on behind the scenes. So in a turn of phrase here, Daniel was hoping that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, or excuse me, would be restored after the 70 years of the exile. But in a turn of phrase, Gabriel explains, it's not going to be 70 years, it's going to be much longer. It's going to be actually 77s of years, is what he says. So look at the text here. Verse 24 to 27, the prophecy of the 77s. Probably, if chapter 7 has the most written about it, about the Son of Man, um, for Daniel chapter 9, is probably the most prophecy written about 
in general for the entire Bible. So to say that we're, we're in the thick of it, in the weeds, we, we in the weeds, if I can use bad grammar. Look at verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah, or anointed one, shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, or the leader, or the ruler who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, till, until the end of war desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, there's a lot of information here. Some things I have time to discuss and some things I don't. So, in order to help you best get these verses, I boiled it down to the top 10 statements or top 10 parts of the prophecy of the 77s. If you um, just simply write these down, they're going to be on the screens. It will help you go through and, and, and hopefully, if Pastor said I was a good teacher with clarity, hopefully this will help you help some of the clarity, okay? So let's kind of walk through the weeds um, and we'll figure out along the way. Oh, there we go. Okay, there's the first couple of statements. So, the first thing is that this prophecy is about weeks of years. And we read the word weeks, and the Hebrew word translated weeks, it literally means sevens, okay? It refers to seven days or seven years or seven periods of undetermined time. Uh, most scholars, whether conservative or liberal, agree that the word represents seven years. But more importantly, according to the context of what Daniel was just thinking about in chapter 9, he's already been thinking about uh, God's program in Israel in terms of years. He knows 70 years, 70 years, that's when the exile is going to end. That's what Jeremiah said. And so it would be normal for him to interpret these as seven. So we're talking about 70 sevens, all right? So sevens is the term that he's talking about. So that means, if you do your math right, that the total time of the prophecy is 490 years, right? So the entire time in view here is a period of 490 years. That's 70 sets of seven. And of course, um, the calendar that's used here is just a little bit different. In prophecy, and pastors mentioned this before in Revelation, in prophecy, there is a 360-day calendar that's used rather than today, which is a 365.24, I believe is what it is. Not 25, it's one hundredth shy of a quarter um, is actually what I think it is. But you can say a quarter, we'll be, we'll be all right. That's our standard day today. But in prophecy, the book of Revelation as well, it shows a 360-day calendar. Wouldn't that be easy? 
every day is 30 days? Wouldn't that be so much, instead of having to remember the whole acronym of, that I can't even remember half the time? 360-day prophetic calendar. It's also mentioned uh, in Revelation, and we'll come back to that as well. So the prophecy about weeks of years, the total time is 490 years. So Daniel says, okay, what about my people? And Gabriel says, well, it's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks of years. Okay, so that's a lot longer. Okay. So the purpose of the prophecy, or excuse me, the prophecy, excuse me, concerns the Jewish people and Jerusalem. And this is so, so important. This is not for us. This is not for the church age people. It's not for us at all. Um, It's only for the Jews and for the city of Jerusalem. Gabriel told Daniel that the time period is for your people and your city. That's you, Daniel, as a Jew, and for your cities, Jerusalem, the one that was destroyed. Okay, Now, we'll come back to that and see how it fits into the whole scheme of things. But you need to understand that's for them. So these 70 weeks have always been meant for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people. Now, the purpose, and this is where a lot of scholars like to disagree, because no scholar agrees with another scholar. That would be not good for writing books and for having discussions and debates, right? (laughs) So the purpose of the prophecy is to fulfill six goals. And those six goals, we read them in your text, to finish the transgression, uh, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Um, They're in the text here. I've got the rest of them. Uh, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Now, if I had lots of extra time, we could go down through each one of those. But understand this, just, just from a, a, a big picture perspective. What Daniel is saying is that those 70 weeks of years will not be completed, will not be finished until those six goals are brought to completion. Okay? So those six goals summarize God's program to bring the nation of Israel the blessings that he promised through his covenants, okay? All the way back to Abraham, okay? So the purpose of the 77s is not for us, for the church. It's for Israel. It's God's plan for Israel. And so those six goals summarize. Some people will say, well, the first, well, uh, you know that the first three if I can at least, I'll at least tell you that. I've got at least that information. Uh, the first three of those goals um, are referenced with evil words, transgression, sin, iniquity. The next three goals reference good things um, in them, everlasting righteousness, to seal up or preserve, to anoint. So those are good things. So some people, scholars will easily say and divide it into easily two sections and say three goals, Jesus accomplished on the cross, and three goals are still yet future. But it's not so easily divided that way. But I'm at least giving you a starting point, and you can go get lost in the weeds tonight as you study that, okay? So just understand in a very general sense that those six goals have to be completed in order for the 70 weeks to finish, okay? Now, the starting point, where do we start from? The starting point of the prophecy. And what we mean is, is, is when does the 490 years begin? According to the text, it says the 490 years begin with the decree to restore and to build Jerusalem. That's the point. 
Now we know that Cyrus is going to issue a decree here to allow the Jewish people to return to their homeland after the exile. We know that's going to happen. Persia takes over and they promptly rebuild the temple, although they do get distracted. But it's not until the days of Nehemiah that an actual Persian king makes a decree, Artaxerxes, and he issues a decree allowing the Jews to return and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Remember Nehemiah building the walls, building the city? Okay, that's the point. Okay, so Daniel's saying that from that decree, you move forward. So that decree that best fits the starting point of that prophecy, and we can look up historical records and you can come to 444 BC. That's that starting point. Okay, so the starting point of the decree is 444 BC. See how that rhymes? You can easily remember that, right? So the starting point is then. And that's also another discussion that scholars like to have. Well, I don't think it really started then. Well, it could have started here. It could have started. The text is pretty clear. This is when it started. The first 69 weeks, the first 483 years. And look what the text says. I'm going to read this. It says, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Or excuse me. Uh, I lost my place. We'll go back to verse uh, 25. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore or rebuild Jerusalem, just like we said, until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? So from the command to restore and rebuild the temple until the time of the Messiah the Prince, it says there's 483 years, the first 69 weeks. Now if we do the math, the 69th week of Daniel's prophecy comes in the week of 27 to 34 A.D. Now, again, some scholars have gone to extreme detail to try to translate that into days, to minutes, and to seconds to get the exact beginning point all the way to the exact ending point. And those guys have spent a lot of time doing chronology, doing... Because you know that the calendar just, just doesn't, it's not the same from the B.C. into A.D. And then later on, there's a couple of days missing and the Pope's like, hey, let's just get rid of those days and those 10 days are gone forever. The calendar system is really kind of messed up through history. Okay, But they've undertaken extreme studies. Uh, one of the guy's names is uh, uh, Sir Robert Anderson was the first one and then... Another fella, uh, Harold Honer out of Dallas uh, Seminary, built his work upon Robert Anderson because they wanted to know the details, and there's nothing wrong with that. I want to know exactly when the ending of this point is. And, for example, Honer, he says that the ending point is April 3rd of 33 A.D., and that's when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and that's the day that the nation of Israel rejected him. The Messiah was cut off. Now, that's exact. That's including translating it into days. That's the thing about how, how do I even know? I mean, i got to look at eclipses, earthquakes, all the different signs in the skies and combine all that evidence. And, he, of course, he wrote a book about it, you know, and put it into a book so you can better understand that. So there's a lot more detail. 1,000, or excuse me, 173,800 days is the number of days that elapsed between the decree in 444 B.C. to what he assumes 33 A.D. 
But here's the thing, okay? Here's my only caveat. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and then we'll go on to the next thing. Is that Daniel uses um, hand grenades and horseshoes in his timing. He's like seven years. We'll get it. Somewhere in that seven-year time period. Okay, there it is. He doesn't translate it into Western culture of days, minutes, and seconds. His time scale is weeks, periods of seven. So I look at this and say 27 to 34. Well, yeah, that's the time that the ministry of Christ towards the half end of that week, that's the time when all those events in the ministry of Christ happen. So, hey, if it's close enough for Daniel, it's close enough for me. I mean, that's all I'm concerned about. If you want to get more detail, you can do that as well. But just know that prophecy doesn't have to be detailed down to the day for it to be correct. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Now, if I can go to the next thing. There we go. Last four. There's the gap in here called grace. The first 69 weeks, the first 483 years have already run their course. But the final seven week, the final 70th week hasn't run its course yet. Because when Israel rejected Jesus Christ as her Messiah, God temporarily suspended his plan for the nation of Israel. Remember, 70 weeks for your people and for your city. This means that there's an ongoing gap of time between the 69th and 70th week. I call it a gap of grace. We're living in that gap right now. Between that gap, two specific events happened. The Messiah will be killed, and that was fulfilled by Christ's death on the cross. And second, Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. And that gap of time between the 69th and 70th week is what we just have termed the church age. It's a gap called grace. Because if Israel, and there are no what-ifs in God's plan, right? But less perchance that Israel actually did accept the kingdom, you know, you and I would have never had a chance to be part of that kingdom. There would never have been a gap called grace. The church age will end when Christ comes to rapture his bride up to the church for heaven. After all, remember, the church wasn't around during the first 69 weeks. Therefore, it makes sense that the church won't be here on earth for the final week as well. Remember, the 70 weeks are due with Israel, with the people, with Jerusalem, not us. Okay? But there's a gap here. And that final week, that final seven years, you should know this is the tribulation period. That final week, that 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, that final week, that final seven years, and that's the seven years that the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with Israel for a period of seven years a week. And this covenant begins that last week of prophecy known as our seven-year tribulation. And of course, there are several events that have happened in our timetable that show that this covenant is possible. You know, Israel was reestablished as a nation in 1948, making therefore a covenant with Israel possible because before that they weren't a nation. So how could you make a covenant with a nation that's not really a nation? <laughs> right? Makes sense? Okay. And then, of course, the never-ending peace process. You know, peace in the Middle East, it's almost as, as if that's never going to happen. It will happen one day, but it won't be with the fellow that you want to 
to make peace with, uh, with the Antichrist. The Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel about halfway through, um, at the midpoint of the tribulation, the three and a half years. And in conjunction with this violation, he will set up and desecrate the temple by setting up an image of himself and calls all of the people. That's when he takes over and becomes the world leader. I want the whole world to worship me, he says. And that's why that final three and a half years of tribulation is considered the great tribulation. That's why Jesus says when he's talking in Matthew 24, 21, he says, when that happens, he says to the Jewish people, to the remnants, he says, you need to leave and get out of town as far as possible. And that's when they flee to the rocks of Petra and say, hide us, hide us from this guy, this Antichrist. The end of the 70 weeks. At the end of the 70th weeks, it says God will kill the Antichrist, which also marks the end of the seven-year tribulation. By that time, remember those six prophetic goals? Daniel 9.24 will be fulfilled, and the thousand-year millennial of Christ, thousand-year reign of Christ, will an everlasting righteousness. Remember that phrase? Everlasting righteousness, him ruling. So those six goals have to be completed for those 70 weeks to end. And that ties in to so much of what we already know in the book of Revelation. Now, we need to take a cue from Daniel tonight and understand that while prophecy is important, prayer is more important. Um, especially if we're going to understand the scriptures. Especially in a passage like this, which is not easy to understand. And we don't want to forget the Holy Spirit who is our helper. We ask for him, ask for illumination, ask for understanding. And where that is not given, where we still don't understand, it's okay. We just need to trust his plan. Just like the song says, when you can't, you remember the song? When you can't see his hand. Exactly. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart or trust his plan. Okay? So trusting God despite the details, that's what it comes to. When you don't understand a text like this, or any other scripture passage, take the cue from Daniel. It, it, it is undertake a study of it. Get on your hands and knees. Ask the Lord to help. Give you insight. It may not be given then. Your request may not be sent by Gabriel <laughs> to your front door. If it is, you want to get up and testify about that. Okay. If it, if it happens that way, and who knows? You know, as as the author of Hebrews says, we oftentimes entertain angels unaware. So take the cue from Daniel. The prophecy is difficult. Sometimes it's hard. But Daniel didn't, he undertook a study of it because he wanted to understand what his contemporary, Jeremiah the prophet, had said about it. He wanted to understand that, and so he undertook that. And when he began to study and study and study, that's when God said, okay, now I'm going to give you the insight that you need. And I'm thankful for that because now we have that insight. We know what's going to happen. Daniel, he didn't know at the time. And the turn of phrase there, not 70 years, but 70 weeks of years. But the amazing thing is in all of that prophecy, as pastor, he said in his prayer, you know, six, seven hundred years, you know, Daniel prophesied this before it ever happened. I mean, even until the Messiah, the prince being cut off. 
There's so many other things I didn't get to tell you in that text. And we'll save that for some other time. But